This is Good Together, the podcast that inspires you to create positive change in the world every day by being a conscious consumer. I'm your host, Laura Alexander Wittig, founder of Brightly.eco, and I started this podcast a few years ago because I wanted a place to talk about the gray areas around sustainability and how being a conscious consumer can be challenging and confusing, but it's totally doable. So join me in the name of reducing waste and living positively in the name of the planet. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, Good Together listeners, today is about a topic that I like love and hate. <laughs> I myself am a total germaphobe. Um, and I think when, uh, you know, I, I thought uh, when I when I started to brainstorm the idea for this episode, I realized that there's so many things we don't understand about really germs and microbes and how climate change affects them. And I think you might see little bits and pieces coming out to you in the news where, um, you know, whether we talk about like, you know, the the origins of the latest uh, virus and, um, you know, the implications that uh, that has on climate change, you see these bits and pieces happening all over the place. But I find the um, information out there to be a little overwhelming and sometimes even lacking from a consumer perspective um, as we think about the impact that climate change has on germ spread. So I thought, why don't we do an episode all about this and we bring an amazing expert um, in to chat with us. So today we have Jason Tetro uh, chatting with us all about germs and climate change. So welcome, Jason. And I, and I wonder if you can just provide a brief intro of yourself um, and in your background. Yeah, absolutely. Hello. Uh, first off, my name is Jason Tetro, although uh, some people, especially in Canada, will know me as the germ guy. Um, <laughs> there you <and> go. <laughs> you know what? I wanted the molder of microbiology or the maven of microbes, but no, <laughs> we were on live television and the host was like, I'm getting sick and tired of calling you this long professorial name i'm just gonna call you the germ guy and it stuck so <laughs> oh my gosh i love yeah. it <laughs> nothing like a sound bite oh, right <laughs> it was just it was the best thing too because live television when you have a reaction that reaction just stays forever <laughs> so it was it was awesome uh but the reason i'm called the germ guy is because back in 1987 i started working in the field of microbiology and I've pretty much been in microbiology and immunology, health-related and environmental-related microbiology for all this time. And over the last 15 years, I've been in the public sort of sharing what we know in the laboratory, lab rat syndrome, if you will, with the 
public so that they have a better understanding of what's going on in terms of the science. Because as you were mentioning, a lot of that information can be very overwhelming. And so my goal is to take a lot of the science that you can see and hear and get confused by and scratch your head and make it in such a way that you can go, oh, okay, that makes sense. Okay, that that, yeah. that works. All right, cool. And so um, that's sort of why I'm here. And uh, I'm really looking forward to sort of talking about that. Absolutely. And I think most people, if we think about like our general relationships with germs, right? Obviously, you're not going to be thinking about germs on a daily basis unless you are, you know, constantly having to disinfect mm-hmm. things or wash your hands. I think a lot of like our day-to-day activities are just kind of, uh, you know, built into our routines. So we don't typically think about germs until something's wrong, until we're sick. Um, And then we're, you know, trying to think about, well, how did I catch this? Or, you know, Mm -hmm. what's going on with my body? Or how do I um, treat myself? And and it's something that I think, uh, you know, usually comes from a point of stress. (laughs) Yes. Right? So I think (laughs) the more that we can, like, you know, think more about uh, the problem in general and, and understand Number one, like what we can do as consumers to, uh, you know, better educate ourselves uh, about the the link here between, mm-hmm. you know, climate change and conscious consumerism and the spread of germs, I think is fascinating. So I guess let's like, let's set the stage. I mean, there are, you know, absolutely news pieces out there that say uh, deforestation um, in the um, Amazon rainforest has released uh, these scary germs and <laughs> and that's because of uh, you know overall human impact on the planet. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I don't really see much that talks about the the situation broadly. So what if you can kind of set the stage for us about the link between um, germ spread and, and quote unquote climate change overall? Yeah, so we're gonna start off with just microbiology 101, all right? Yeah. Um, if you were to give a microbe, like a little E. coli, just say hi. Um, absolute full ability to grow. And we're going to get into what that means in a second. And you let it grow nonstop. Do you know how long it would be before that one little E. coli was able to cover the entire planet surface area? No, but something tells me it's going to be really fast. Yeah, it's about 48 hours. Wow. Now, the reason that doesn't happen is because microbes need three things. One is a plentiful food source that it can use. Two is a temperature range where it can grow at that speed. And that's usually the one thing that prevents it from growing. Because if I grow it in my uh, incubator at 37 degrees Celsius, it will double every 20 minutes. But if I have it out in the, you know, pool of water on the side of the road, it's not very happy there. It might not even duplicate more than once every couple of hours or even days, something along those lines. Okay. So that really nice temperature is part of it. And then finally, it needs humidity or a water source of some form. And so that's another reason why we don't see a lot of microbial growth is that while there is water and humidity pretty much everywhere, it may not be enough or sufficient to be able to support the growth. Okay. So when we look at those three different things, immediately, if you're thinking about climate change, you're like, well, two of those are part of climate change. One is the temperature. The warmer that it happens to be, there's going to be a higher level of growth, just like I said. And so when that happens, okay, the thing that you have to realize is that the microbes are going to need food in order to grow faster. And that 
ends up creating a big sink, as we like to call it, whereby carbon disappears and more gases appear, such as carbon dioxide and methane. Now, what's really interesting is that if you also have elevated CO2 levels, carbon dioxide, you actually increase the ability of some of these pathogens to be more pathogenic, more virulent, as we like to say, because they get really upset at the CO2 levels rising, and then they create more toxins. And I mean, you've probably heard of powdery mildew, head blight, blotch, all of these things that happen to plants. Well, higher CO2, higher temperature, it's going to be even worse. So there's that. That's the temperature side. Now, on the other side is the humidity, okay? And the thing is, we have known for decades and decades and decades that if you have higher humidity in the environment, you're going to have higher humidity in the soil, and that's going to lead to an increase in pathogens like listeria, E. coli, salmonella. I mean, you've heard of these before uh, because basically we've seen outbreaks of those. But yeah. I'm going to give you a name of a, a of a pathogen that you've probably never even heard of, unless you happen to be in California. In California, it's called Valley Fever. Okay, but okay. it's actually called Coccidioidomycosis. And I don't want anyone. All yeah, right. don't worry. There's no quiz. You don't have to say this three <laughs> times fast or anything like that. What you yeah. do need to know, though, is that it causes fatigue, fever, cough, shortness of breath headaches, general malaise. Okay. Okay. Now, because of the humidity needs for this particular pathogen, it was really only in California where there was spray coming off the coast and keeping it nice and humid. Okay. But because the humidity in the world has grown significantly, okay, not only has the incidence in California gone up about 800% over the course of two decades, but now you can actually find it in Washington State, and even... Oh my gosh, that's where I am. Okay. Oh yeah. no! <laughs> well, you probably heard of it then, because people have talked about yes. the valley fever in the air, especially after it's been raining and stuff like that. Absolutely. It, I have heard of it. Um, and I I did live in California for a few years as well, and I remember hearing about this. But I think what what is surprising about what you're mentioning is that, to me, the concept of valley fever, it seemed like very like far oh, off. Yeah. So the way that you're describing it now, it makes it seem much more um, of an you know, uh, realistic, maybe imminent threat. Yeah, and for me, I mean, it wasn't that, for me, it was kind of like, okay, well, it's going to move up north because of climate change and stuff like that. Then they showed up in Utah. <laughs> and mm, gosh, I'm sorry, yeah. but Utah is not A, near a sea or an ocean, and B, it, it's dry. <laughs> yeah. So the- and so, yeah, I mean, so to me, that that's that's very interesting because it's, we're basically saying, look, even if you don't live in an area that has, uh, you know, these sort of optimal conditions, it's getting to a point where, you know, perhaps this pathogen, it, what is it adapting? Is it deciding like, hey, like, I'm going to, you know, change myself a little bit so I can spread more? Like, no. is, is that kind of what's going no. on? No, the, the climate actually is changing to allow it to grow. Mm, and there you go. Well, I, let me give you another example. This one is uh, a bacterium that you find in ocean waters. Uh, it's called Vibrio vulnificus. It causes watery diarrhea, cramping, nausea, vomiting, fever. And I know, I know, I'm making your germophobia worse, and I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? I was actually just thinking that the scientific name of this sounds like a Harry Potter spell. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Vibrio petunus. There we go. But yeah. There we go. <laughs> Well, the thing is, is that it used to only be in Florida. 
right? So it was like, yeah, okay, it was a problem in Florida, not a problem, you know, not a big issue. Now we find it in the North Atlantic. <laughs> wow. I know. Yeah. So, so it's basically, it's something where, yes, like typically it was in Florida, it's coming off of the ocean water and, you know, just one of the many things happening down there and now it's continuing to spread. Oh, and exactly. So, so yeah. basically, yes, we can find sharks in the Potomac, and we can definitely find Vibrio vulnificus in the North Atlantic. I mean, we know and, climate yeah. change is happening. Yeah, absolutely. And so you would say in general, as you look at the historical um, you know, uh, impact of what we're talking about, obviously these types of occurrences are increasing as the climate is warming. Is that correct? Yeah. This isn't just some sort of like temporary um, trend. Oh, no, no. This is, this is increasing. Yeah. This is getting to a point where we're seeing a lot of these pathogens migrate uh, towards the north because the north uh, is experiencing higher levels of humidity and they are overall generally having higher temperatures. And while we're talking about some of the pathogens that are, you know, associated with foodborne illness and stuff like that, you also have to realize that this is also the case with something like Borrelia burgdorferi, which is the Lyme disease bacterium that you find in ticks. Yeah. Those things have been moving yeah. and migrating as well. So, I mean, this is something that's happening all over the world. It's just that we can pick out a few examples for this podcast that can really, you know, send it home to to the listener. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned Lyme disease, because I feel like that's a, a situation that people are probably a little bit more familiar with, right? Yeah. Where it used to be, you know, contained in different areas. And now we see it basically spread all over the country. Um, and, you know, obviously, there are big implications for people that, you know, end up getting bitten by a tick mm -hmm. um, and, and, and having to suffer from Lyme disease. And I think that for most people, I guess, because we are able to identify like, you know, the primary carrier of this is a tick and it's like a physical, a physical yeah. thing rather than, you know, having uh, to think about microbes. Uh, you know, I mm -hmm. think that was a sort of a wake up call for most people around understanding, okay, wait a second. Like, used to just be up was it Lyme was it New York was that is this is am I correct there where Lyme disease started uh, is that where that came oh, from? It was Lyme I think Lyme was Connecticut Connecticut that's yeah. right yeah somewhere somewhere on the on the east coast right yeah. and now it, it's kind of everywhere um and so I think you know listeners as we consider the visualization of what Jason's talking about I think that's probably a good one to also wrap your head around exactly and I think at that yeah. point you start to understand that now we're in a situation where this is happening and it's happening on a daily basis. So it's going to be more difficult for us to sort of work back from that to try and yes. prevent it or somehow mitigate it. And now we're really at a point where we have to respond to it. And yes, with something absolutely. like a Lyme disease, right? You have to realize that you're not going to be able to stop the bug because it's in the ticks and you can't stop the weather because it's warmer. So the ticks are going to overwinter. So you have to start learning how to wear long clothing when it's hot outside. Absolutely. There's, there's a lot of, you're right, uh, mitigation techniques that we have to start doing for the reasons that you just mentioned. Um, and I think, you know, as we talk about, um, you know, steps that people can take. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the conscious consumerism impact now. Um, but before we get there, I think, you know, we could have an entire episode about this, but I think one uh, misconception that people have, or maybe like old sort of old way of thinking would be, well, it's fine. I can just take an antibiotic. Right. And yeah. as we know, and as I'm sure you know very well, like 
you know, we are kind of running out of antibiotics or, you know, these antibiotics that we are traditionally reliant on are starting to become wise to some of these new pathogens, right? So it's not just one of those, okay, Laura and Jason, you're kind of scaring me, but like, my doctor can just give me z pack, right? Yeah, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, you see, whereas we were yeah. talking about with... Um, uh, the, the, the valley fever and some, yeah. and the Vibrio, they didn't change. They just kind of went where it's warmer and nicer for them to live. With antibiotic resistance, they do change. And yeah. the thing is that in many ways, the low levels of antibiotic exposure that are occurring pretty much all over the world are contributing yeah. to this happening. And then it's making its way back into the public through a completely different route. And then it gets into the community. And just to give you an example, and I don't want to really get too far into this, um, you've probably heard of MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus yeah. aureus, or MRSA, as a lot of people like to call it. Well, yeah. we've actually been able to trace certain strains of MRSA from the ground to the cattle, to the livestock, to the farmer, to the hospital, to patients. That's crazy. Yeah. That's absolutely crazy. And, you know, and when you think about that, uh, you know, we're, yeah, we're going to talk about, um, you know, things you can do. I, I do think, you know, actually, that's a really good point around the livestock, which is, you know, it's mm -hmm. the, the livestock piece of things. That is largely what's contributing, I think, to this antibiotic resistance. Of course, humans, too. But it, it, it's a very complicated problem, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the whole idea of antibiotics in agriculture has been something that I've been screaming about, I guess, is the best thing for yeah. probably over a decade. Um, we've made some some moves. And I mean, this is the type of thing where uh, when we're talking about living ethically, we can actually do this so that we can put pressure. Yeah. But in that sense as well, you know, you have to kind of understand what the role of microbes are um, in terms of the overall general consumerism to even have a feeling as to why you would want to do something like, oh, I don't know, choose meats that were raised, you know, from animals that were raised without antibiotics. It, it's a simple, simple Absolutely. sentence that you look for in a packaging, but it means so much. It means a ton. And actually, listeners, I was telling Jason before we start recording this, I want to do a whole episode about that specific yeah. topic because I think there's so much we can go into it. But I think on the, um, you know, on the topic of, okay, we've given you kind of a very brief overview of what's going on with this current situation. I think now we generally like to shift into talking about things that we can possibly do as conscious consumers to sort of mitigate what's going mm. on as best we can with the full understanding that, of course, policies, uh, you know, that are enacted by governments and, uh, you know, made to made uh, corporations to be beholden to right we know that those things are really really big movers but as conscious consumers we can also do other things one of the interesting um pieces that when we were doing the research here that that stood out to me was the plastics part of this yeah. um, because i mean if you've listened to this podcast before like we talk a lot about trying to reduce plastics for a variety of reasons and to me i had no idea that plastics could actually like have an impact on germs. Like what? So like, yeah, let's talk about mm -hmm. this because I think that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of people will be like, I don't see how a piece of plastic could have anything to do with microbes. 
And this is what I have to say to you. Back in 1999, I wrote a paper on societal trends in infectious disease. And it's very relevant to this day. Um, And the most important thing in terms of personal consumer choices was volume. The amount that we purchase, the amount that we eat, the amount that we drink, the amount that we throw away, the amount that we travel, the amount of antibiotics we use, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And what we found, and it's just been getting more and more relevant, is that plastics themselves have the ability to harbor bacteria and allow them to basically stay in one place and grow while the temperature and the food and the water come around it. So it's not just floating around in space, it's on a piece of plastic. And then it just goes through the environment and it allows itself to grow. Oh, and by the way, another thing it may experience, antibiotics. But anyways, um, got to head that home. Yeah. So what ends up <laughs> happening is that the more plastic waste that you're putting out there, the more carriers for bacteria as possible. And, and of course, we're talking bacteria, viruses, fungi, uh, protozoa, helminths, all of this. I'm just using bacteria because of the antibiotic resistance. Um you all of a sudden are giving them an opportunity to grow in a way that wouldn't necessarily happen if the plastic wasn't there. And- Interesting. And so when you're talking about this, you're, so you're saying that they're, okay, they're, they're growing inside of the plastic. Let's talk about like uh, somebody goes to the store and they get one of those clamshells of mm-hmm. uh, salad, uh, you know, salad greens. Um, I've done it myself. We're all guilty. So like you're saying that in, in a world that we're discussing, I could have a container of salad greens uh, and and the plastic around it is harboring bacteria. Is that what you're saying? Oh, yeah. Wow. What will end up happening is that uh, inevitably that thing's going to get shaken and then the bacteria that happen to be there. Now, granted, if you're having a salad, it should be good bacteria, not bad bacteria, because if it's bad bacteria, you're not going to eat that salad again, are you? Um, Yeah, exactly. But the thing is, is that you will have that uh, essentially attaching to the plastic as it's getting moved around. And then as it's going through the landfill process, it may come into contact with say meat juices which do have Uh pathogens or may come into contact with uh antibiotics because of what's going on in the the waste system because waste is not absolutely dry there's going to be liquids in there so there's going to be some kind of leaching and as a result of that there's going to be all sorts of exposures happening on that piece of plastic as it's going through into the to the landfill and then when it's actually in the landfill it's just going to be exposed to whatever's there now that's one example here's the thing have you heard of the pacific gyre I have not. Okay. Well, I well since I read these notes, I have. Okay. <laughs> but listeners, so, no, I had not previously. There <laughs> is a new continent, and you can call it that. It's a floating continent of garbage. Oh, yes, I have heard of it, but I, I guess I didn't know the name yeah, of it. So okay, yes, keep going. A lot going. of people yes. call it the Pacific Gyre. Um, some people call it the, uh, the, the garbage land or garbage island, whatever. Uh, yeah. I think officially yeah. it's called the North Pacific Subtropical Gyre, whatever. Mm. Um, but the fact is, is that it has its own microbiome. Yeah, because all the bacteria, all the viruses, all the fungi, and everything get attached to these things, and then they end up here, and then they start interacting with one another. Wow! And now we have studies where people are going in there in the hopes of being able to take out microbes to find out, you know, how many of them are pathogenic and stuff like that. What's really cool though is that 
there's a lot of them that are breaking down the plastic and now they're being taken into laboratories and we can now do what's basically the same thing we do with milk. You're fermenting plastics. It's the coolest thing. Wow. Yeah, it's like a totally different show. Wow. Well, from a from a germaphobe perspective, that is really not cool. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, the, the, the thing is, is again, this is this is why, you know, germ guy probably works over Mulder of microbiology, because I think it's kind of cool that we may actually get to a point where it's not about finding some co- kind of, you know, quote unquote, ethical plastic. We might still be able to use the plastic that we're just using today. We just have to have microbes in proper environments. So you have a different bin that you put this plastic into and it goes to a fermentation facility where it's all broken down by microbes. Wouldn't that be easy? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, it is. So one of the things and the reason why I asked you about the plastic clamshell uh, situation, because I, I do think that there is a misconception that having something wrapped in plastic is hygienic. Like, it's just like, I don't know. It's like, it's new, shiny. It's not been touched by bare hands, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's a big myth that we kind of just busted. We're not trying again, as a germaphobe, let me tell you, like, we're not trying to scare everybody. Like by no means, there's no no scare tactics here. Mm -hmm. But when we talk about the reduction of plastic waste for many other reasons, this just to me ends up being one other bonus that you get when you choose to shop at a farmer's market or, you know, uh, get produce that's not contained in plastic and put it in your own reusable bag. Mm-hmm. Like just again, trying to reduce that plastic part of the equation, I think is really important. Um, and I, you know, to me, that was something that I really wanted us to get into. Oh, yeah. And the other thing that you have to realize is that the largest chain of fast food doesn't use a clamshell. Mm, what do you mean? Tell me more about that. Well, have you ever gone to Subway? Yes. Have you ever ordered a Subway? Yes. Uh, did it come in a clamshell? No. no. It came in paper. <laughs> I mean, now granted, yeah. it's wax paper and that isn't necessarily recyclable, but it's a lot less of a footprint than a, you know, big clamshell. Because if you did a clamshell yeah. for a sub, that thing would be massive. You could yeah. literally take your pet chihuahua and use it as a boat. I mean, you yeah. don't want to do that, <laughs> Absolutely. right? So the reality Absolutely. is that the reason that these types of containers and are used is mainly for show. But mm-hmm. if you're a place like Subway, they're already buying your product. <laughs> You don't need to have something. And we even see this with, uh, you know, with with another uh, fast food company where most of the time they'll wrap it in some kind of foil or some kind of paper. But for their specialty items, the ones that are really special, it comes in a, you know, sort of a cardboard clamshell. That's Mm. that's all marketing that has nothing to do with food safety. Yeah, absolutely. And that makes a lot of sense. I think especially if you consider the visual of going into the grocery store, getting your produce, of course, there are options uh, to get like, again, this lettuce Mm -hmm. uh, one that we're talking about. Of course, there's options to get salad greens without plastic, but then you're kind of tempted by that whole pretty wall of them, right? And so I think, again, and the other thing too, is we've, um, we've had a few like pieces of content go viral on social media before, like one, you know, keeping like, for instance, like fresh fruit, strawberries in a clamshell, they actually go bad Mm -hmm. faster in those plastic containers, maybe because of what we've been talking about earlier. It's going to, those strawberries are going to go bad faster 
Um, but if you get home and you, uh, you know, rinse them off and put them in a glass mason jar, they're going to last like twice as long. Mm. Um, so just try to like not have the plastic at all if possible. And then if interrupt that piece, um, because I think that's massive. And then the other piece that I'm thinking of that went viral was we went to Target and we saw some, they are literally, and they're still selling it. I've seen it before. They sell single serving little, they almost look like yogurt containers, mm -hmm. but they're water for dogs. It's like, mm. like plastic water bottle things for dogs, which is absurd. So let's, let's just try and like reduce plastic in general, especially when we're thinking about food, because I think it's a really big deal. Um, I know we're coming up on time. Um, and before we kind of wrap things up, I wanted to talk really briefly about uh, disinfectants and like trying to, yeah. uh, you know, prevent germ spread around your home because we get so many questions all the time about are eco-friendly products actually disinfecting or are they, you know, just spreading things around. Mm -hmm. um, and before I, before I let you jump in here, I'll say that as a germaphobe, I have done my research and like, for instance, there's a, there's a popular brand out there called seventh generation. They use like a compound. I think that's derived from like thyme. Yeah. Uh, it's like thymol or something like that. But yeah. I remember looking, looking on the back and, and saying like, okay, look, it, it does, you know, get rid of most bacteria, viruses, et cetera. But if you look in small print, it's like, it literally has to sit on the surface for like minutes, mm -hmm. which most people aren't going to do. They're going to spray it and wipe it. So I think in general, there, there is su some misconception from, from folks around either they think eco-friendly products don't disinfect at all. So I'm going to have to use the really toxic stuff if I want to have any kind of um, impact mm -hmm. on my home, or it can go the other way, which is like, well, I'm going to like DIY my own thing, or I'm going to just, you know, not read the back, the fine print. And, and maybe they're not getting that disinfected yeah. uh, type uh, situation. So I'm curious to talk about that. A little Absolutely. Bit. So we have a difference between cleaning and disinfecting. That's the big thing. When you're cleaning, yeah. you're making it look pretty. When you're yeah. disinfecting, you're making it safe. And that's the huge difference. So when okay. you want to clean, use whatever you like. Use your vinegar, use your baking soda, use your water, whatever, soap, detergent, it's all good, okay? If you're going to disinfect, you have to use an active ingredient that is proven to be effective in reducing a certain number of microbes that are pathogenic over a certain particular amount of time. That's that contact time that you just mentioned, okay? There's only a few that work in the sphere of eco-friendly products. So hydrogen peroxide disinfectants. Now I'm talking about the disinfectant aisle. I'm not talking about the first aid aisle. So if you get the brown bottle, it's not going to be enough. You have to have something in the disinfectant aisle because it's what we call functionalized. Same thing with citric acid. You can get a functionalized citric acid disinfectant. It's pretty effective too. But if you squeeze an orange and a lemon on top of something, the bacteria are going to go, mmm, yummy. Okay. <laughs> so yep. don't do that. Yep. And uh yeah, and I, I love that you mentioned that because you're right. There, there are some DIY things out there, again, great for cleaning, but not necessarily good for um, disinfecting at all. And um, the other thing I mentioned too is even with some of these, and you're probably going to say this too, there's often a shelf life that you're not aware of. Yeah. Um, and I say this because I my favorite, and this is like, they don't pay me to say this at all, but my favorite uh, uh, situation that I use is called Force of Nature. Um, and it is a, a cleaning product that has its own uh, like 
I don't even know what how to describe it. You get a um, electric, it's a, a tr electrolysis Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, little unit that you have at your home. You fill it up with water. They give you a capsule, which is vinegar. And I think there's a few other things mm -hmm. in there, but literally you press go, it turns it into um, a, uh, I, I believe it's hypochloric acid yep. basically that it ends up turning it into. Yep. Um, and I love that stuff. It's amazing. I, I just like would bathe in it if I could. I actually think you actually can put it on your skin technically, but I'm not going to bathe in it. Um, but even that has a very limited shelf life that people don't often understand. So just to, again, it's this education piece, right? Right. And in terms of disinfection, um, when you're doing that and it creates hypochlorous acid, which is probably what it's doing, it's a lighter form of bleach, but it's still very effective. Is chlor Aha, so there yeah, you go. so chlorine is is very effective, and and the thing is, is you know, as a microbiologist and a public health person, I always say, well, you can't beat bleach. And then when you're from the environmental side, you're like, yeah, I know it stinks, but the thing is, is that we're coming up with different versions of uh, that are based on the chlorine that can help. And in this particular case, okay. that sounds like one. Uh, the only other thing that I want to say yeah. is that if you're looking for a disinfectant that ends in OL. You want to either stick to isopropanol or ethanol. Don't use anything else. Okay. Okay. And ethanol is like is what that's derived from alcohol, right? Oh, it's like, alcohol. and is yeah. that why people? Yeah, ethanol is alcohol. Yeah, and so, yeah, and so that's why it's like you. I like that you mentioned don't go to the first aid aisle. But I guess listeners, if you're trying to make sense of this, like I am, right? Like, think about rubbing alcohol and how, like, you know. You could put that on a cut and that disinfects yeah. things. So as we think about like the derivatives of that, that's kind of where it Oh, yeah. And, and I guess. So, the thing yeah. is, is that that's exactly what we do to disinfect our cell phones. That's what we use to disinfect our, our uh, computer screens, everything like that. That's the isopropanol. It's the, the rubbing alcohol. You get it in a spray, you spray it, and away you go. Well, you can do the same thing. And if you take the ethanol and you bring it down to about 70%, 62 to 70%, and then you put it into a gel, surprising, surprise, you can actually put that on your hands and... Oh my goodness, you have a hand sanitizer. There you go. And I remember, right, like when we were in the thick of the pandemic, there was, I think, a little bit more of a movement worldwide for people to educate themselves again on the concept of disinfectant um, oh, yeah. versus just, you know, sort of cleaning, like you mentioned. But again, I think listeners, um, again, we could, we could probably talk about this all day long, but I, I think we've covered the main points remember difference between disinfecting and cleaning, I think is huge. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so Jason, we're, we're already at time, which is crazy. Like I said, listeners, we will do a follow-up based on the agriculture piece of things. Cause I think that's going to be really, really interesting to everybody. Um, but in closing, Jason, I'm curious, um, you, you, you mentioned this before we started recording, but we do have this question that we ask our uh, guests on a recurring basis, which is, you know, if there's anything that you're finding to be uh, particularly interesting that you're witnessing in the quote unquote sustainable and ethical lifestyle movement going on right now. We'd love to hear it. Yeah. So I think what's really happening now is that people are beginning to get a much better understanding of the sort of interdependence that we currently have in this world. Okay. Now, you have to understand something. Interdependence has two components to it. There's the power component, which, you know, you can't really do much about that. But then there's the circular component. And interdependence has to be a circle. And when it comes to consumerism, we're not closing the circle. 
We, we essentially take the raw materials, we then make the raw materials into something, and then we use it, and then we discard it. And it usually goes to some place like a landfill or stuff like that. Now, I mean, about 10% we are recycling to close the circle, but that rest of the 90% isn't closing the circle. And what you've done in this particular case is you've opened up the opportunity for those microbes to start getting those nutrients, foods, warmth, temperature, whatever it may be, that can help them grow. So in that sense, it makes much more sense to do the full circle so that you're back at the raw materials in your hands so that you have the power over them. And this is the one thing that I have to point out, and I think people are starting to really get. In order for us to have a truly circular economy, we have to recognize that if we don't, we're giving up the power to other things that can harm us, in this particular case, pathogens. Well, I think that's one of the best uh, summaries I've heard of what we need to do with the circular economy. So I, I love that. And I, you're right. I think, uh, you know, one of the reasons why we started this podcast is because we wanted to empower people to do things like close that loop and understand that there are a lot of different, uh, you know, moving pieces that go into solving the problem that is climate change or, you know, making ourselves a little bit more sustainable. So this is just one really important piece of the puzzle. Um, but listeners, we'll include links to, um, you know, things that we talked about in our show notes. Uh, of course, the germ guy also has lots of, uh, you know, resources for you. So we'll include links uh, as well. But thank you so much, Jason. Really enjoyed talking to you today. Hey, it was such a pleasure. And I really hope everyone uh, had a little bit of fun while they learned as well. joining us on another episode of Good Together. To get show notes and more, head to brightly.eco slash podcast. Finally, don't forget to join in on the conversation with us on social media. You'll find us on almost everything at brightly.eco. Don't forget, we're all on this journey together. So have fun putting the planet first and stay curious.